0: Hello, all you Rays fans out there, and welcome to The Hit Show, a podcast by and for Tampa Bay Rays fans. My name is Dustin. I'm back again with D-Rays Bay blog managing editor, Danny Russell. Danny, welcome back to The Hit Show number two.
1: I can't believe we've made it.
0: (laughs) Feels good. Feels like it's uh, just been a few days, but uh, a lot of great feedback on this first episode.
1: Yeah, it's been really exciting.
0: Lots to talk about, and I know that uh, we've got uh, a fantastic guest for our second episode of this brand-new podcast. We're super thrilled and want to say thanks to everyone who listened to the first episode, chimed in and gave comments and feedback, new ideas for segments, etc. Keep that stuff coming. You can always hit us up on Twitter. We now have a Twitter account. We are at the hit Show. And of course, uh, Danny and I are both tweeting from from there. You can also drop us an email. We are at draysbaypodcast at gmail dot com. So if you've got suggestions or thoughts, or just jokes, or you want to tell us that we suck, uh, you know how to get a hold of us at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, Danny, uh, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of background on on our on our very special and exciting guest here on on the hit show?
1: Well, I am elated because when I think of giants in the sports journalism industry and i mean this i'm about to say a bunch of nice things and i mean every word of it when i need to gain inspiration when i'm trying to grow uh the craft of writing about the rays or even interviewing other people there's a couple that i look up to mike Pesca, he's the host of slate's daily podcast the gist and he used to broadcast sports for npr uh roger bennett Uh, Of the soccer conglomerate Men in Blazers on NBC Sports. He's a big one. He's a big influence. But chief among them is Rays Radio's pre and post game interview extraordinaire, Neil Solons.
2: And we have him here with us today.
0: Wow. Well, welcome to the Hit Show, Neil. Thank you. You almost
2: wrote that or read it as I wrote it for you. So <laughs> I stumbled mail, a little. <laughs> I
1: I mean every word of it. You know, uh, I think the very first countdown to opening day, Rays radio broadcast, also on a podcast at the end of it, I think it was Dave who was saying that you deserve all the accolades in the world that are could possibly be given, and I think that's completely. And absolutely true. And I hope you always feel incredibly appreciated.
2: Well, I appreciate that. You know, Dave and Andy, um, uh, I, I really consider them more than broadcast partners. I think they're friends. You know, I think we come across hopefully as three brothers. And we get along extremely well. And it makes for great cohesion on the air. And, you know, I think we all, we all love what we do. And, and I think it makes it really easy to work together. You're all veterans, too. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're all, we're all veterans. We're all dads. We all love baseball. I think we all have, you know, uh, different types of sense of humor. Um, You know, I think we're different and similar in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, I think, you know, we like each other and, you know, it it can't be said for every broadcast team in major league baseball. Hmm. You know, we're just very, very lucky that we have, we're three guys that do like working together, that like one another uh, and like what we do coming to the ballpark every day.
1: Before you were with the Rays, you were actually the man for the Durham Bulls. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I spent, you know, it, it, uh, I'm very lucky, um, you know, first because, you know, Durham's a tremendous franchise and so, you know, and their, and their parent company, Capital Broadcasting, but, you know, also because they're affiliated with the Rays organization and have since they began as a AAA affiliate in 1998, so it, it really gave me a lot of um, insight into the organization. And beyond that, you know, it just helped me create a lot of good relationships, trusting relationships. And I I think, you know, it it really helps me have a great understanding of where the Rays are, were, are, and are trying to get to. I think I remember
1: when you made your Rays Radio debut, so to speak. And please fill me in all the rest of the details or correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 2010 – Wasn't there some kind of temporary swap between you and Rich Herrera, uh, flying back and forth between Tampa and Durham? How did,
2: yeah, yeah. So, um, you're right. Uh, you have a good memory, uh, 2010 and 2011 are when I filled in and and then joined full time in 2012. You know, Rich, you know, was looking for an opportunity to do some additional play by play and the race thought, well, why not create a swap for a series and see how it goes and. You know, obviously, I, I, what I had done my, my first several years in Durham, because I actually knew Andy from minor league baseball, didn't really know Dave as well. Um, Andy and I, you know, both spent a considerable amount of time in New Jersey and, and, and had that tie. And I used to, when the Durham season was finished, I would try and either meet the Rays in St. Pete. Or, or meet them on the road if they were in Baltimore or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, just to spend a series in the booth, see how other guys work. You know, you can, I think we're always learning in this game. And, you know, just continue to build that relationship. And that led to a, um, an opportunity to kind of swap. And, and then I was, you know, really consider myself lucky to, you know, to get the opportunity to do this on a regular basis with the Rays here since 2012.
0: Neil, I'm a little curious if you could talk a bit about learning the skill of interviewing.
2: Well, you know, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is being a good listener and, and trying to find, you know, when, when you hear something and being willing to take an interview anywhere. Um, and I think also there's, there's being able to create a comfort level with your subject and, and having them trust that they almost feel uh, as part of the, Project that you're doing as you do, and and I think you know I'm also fortunate that the Rays have a lot of players who I would consider fairly honest and forthright, and you know give a lot of good material. You know I, I think that guys like Alex Cobb come to mind as guys who provide really really good material. You know Chris Archer, and you know you mm-hmm. can go down the line, and 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 I think that also makes my job a lot easier. And then it's just listening to what they say and, and, and doing a lot of research. I mean, finding, you know, what, what makes this person interesting, what makes their story relevant, what, what would allow them to connect with fans and what would a fan want to hear? And that's, you know, a lot of what I try and focus on when I'm sitting down with somebody.
1: When you talk about needing to listen um, I imagine when Joe Madden was there, you did a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like you just gave him a quick little intro and, you know, the rest of your interviews taken care of because he'll just keep on going.
2: Yeah. Dave. I mean, and, and obviously Dave and Andy did a lot of that on the, you know, on the regular basis, but, you know, getting a chance to interview him, let's say in spring training games on the field or, you know, filling in for Dave or Andy occasionally, you know, I, I think I learned probably more, is when we were not on air too then then the um then then the interview itself sometimes because he was really really generous with his time and you know what was a 7 minute interview became a 25 minute um you know storytelling you know masterclass review of, of, yeah you know and 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 I think that relationship is building with Kevin Cash too where, you know, I think there's that trust level and ability to tell us things that I think just overall help us with the, with the broadcast beyond the interviewing side of things. I think that's what we want is to, you know, make sure we can give fans as much insight and that we're kind of on the note and, and helping guide the fan through the game, you know, not only through our eyes, but through the manager's eyes as well.
1: Have you noticed a difference in Kevin Cash from even, say, the end of last season to the beginning of spring training?
2: Well, you know, I think just overall his comfort level has changed, um, and and um, I think that's apparent. You know, I was lucky um, in my years in Durham. I knew Kevin as a player. Um, you know, it was 2005 and 2006 that he was with um, the Durham Bulls for parts of both years, and mm-hmm. it was 2006 that is 2006 or yeah 2006 that um, his oldest daughter was born, and that was the same year my first child was born. My daughter um, was born as well. So, you know, we had kind of a common bond at the time. And, and you know, I really got to be able to relate to him. And I think that also has created a, a comfort level personally. But I think that Kevin is an easy person to relate to and is very uh, down to earth, self-deprecating. And I think that, you know, I, I think the self-deprecation comes across. I think the biggest thing is he is very, very, uh, focused on putting the attention on the players as much mm-hmm. as possible. And, uh, you know, and, and, and he wants to win in the worst way. And, and I think his competitiveness also comes across.
0: So, Neil, a lot of the, the staff had questions, obviously, wondering mm-hmm. about things that were going into camp. And there's a big curiosity about the pitching side of things. If, if everybody's healthy, what do you imagine that the Rays do with all of the starting pitching that we potentially – project to have towards the end of the season?
2: I mean, to start the year, I I would think if everyone's healthy, the the five to start are the five that you would anticipate. And that's Archer, Odorizzi, um, Smiley, followed by Moore and Erasmo Ramirez. Not necessarily in that order, obviously, you know, pending matchups, etc. And then I would think Matt Andrees and Blake Snell would start the year as insurance in Durham because, you know, the thing I look at is, you know, people focus on, the the service time issue with Blake um and the savings and uh, and if they do that's certainly part of it but the other thing is that he only had 134 innings and if you add 20 percent, you're looking at probably 165 max for this year well if you can limit his innings in triple-a games in the first month or two of the year you know then um you don't have to halt him Uh, If you're in a race in October um, or September, um, you're Mm -hmm. allowed to pitch him. And I think that's, you know, an important piece of the puzzle. And then I would think if your rotation continues to grow and everybody stays healthy, I mean, I could see Erasmo Ramirez and or Matt Andres being weapons in your bullpen. What I remember most about last year is not only how Erasmo evolved as a starter, but how durable and his ability to bounce back as a starter and a reliever. If you need your pitcher on long rest, short rest, it didn't seem to matter. Length of game, you know, he was ready to go. I mean, he's he he's very very durable, and I, I get a sense that Matt Andriese is very similar, even though they're very different builds. And I think both could be unique weapons if the Rays are going to deploy pitchers for you know as as Kevin Cash mentioned with at his opening news conference with Matt Silverman, using guys for four five six outs during the course of a game if needed.
1: Yeah, it really seems like another component of the raise way for pitchers will be that four-out reliever, that guy who can bridge the gap into the next inning.
2: Yeah, or a two-inning guy. I mean, let's say you get a strong six, and today you're going to use Matt Andries for 7-8, or today you use Erasmo Ramirez for 7-8, and then use Colomay for nine or Boxberger for nine, or sedaniel or for nine if it's all lefties coming up, or you know whatever it may be. Um, and then you use two relievers on one day and then you have five well-rested for the next day um, and can use even the six, the guy who pitched the one inning. I mean, you know, those those really could open up some options if your starters are giving you those solid six or seven innings a night.
1: Do you think we'll start to see Xavier Cedeno in a high leverage role?
2: I, I thought he pitched in some high leverage roles last year at times at the end, and I thought he did mm-hmm. a reason a pretty good job. You know, I think... There's really going to be a feeling out process in the first six weeks of the season. And the other thing that I think is unique is how many off days there are. I mean, the first 47 days of the season, the Rays have eight off days, four in April and four in May. That really allows them to be flexible with their rotation. If they want to give guys extra rest, if they want to go with a four-man at times and use Erasmo in the bullpen, or if, you know, they want to, you know, add a reliever at times and, you know, or, or, you know, go with a go with an extra man in their pen. They have the opportunity to do that. So I'm curious. I think it's going to be a feeling-out process as to what role Xavier and other guys in that bullpen play. And then hopefully after that, they really find themselves and and continue to develop some depth below so that if there are injuries or they feel someone like a Johnny Venters or someone of that nature can help, that they're ready to do so when the schedule becomes thicker in terms of the lack of off days.
1: How are the Tommy John guys doing? I was watching a periscope of uh, one of the Rays bullpen sessions, and I saw Kyle McPherson in there.
2: Are all the Tommy John guys in camp? They're all in camp. You know, most of them are going through normal drills. Alex Cobb um, spoke the, the first day and said he's throwing at 120 feet. Um, and that next week he would throw, I think, at 135. Uh, and then they have these built-in two off weeks for each of these guys. And then he would build toward going to the mound after that. So I think him and uh, um, Chase Whitley are on the same schedule where they hope to throw off a mound in mid-March. Which would be a you know a major step for each of them, probably the next hurdle. Uh, in the case of Johnny Venters and uh, Neil Wagner, I think the Rays are going to be careful with each. I think they're also on a similar schedule where I think they would throw bullpens in mid-March. Johnny did throw off a bullpen mound in October, but I think you know they're going to almost back these guys up, work them slowly into games. I wouldn't be shocked if either of them started the year in extended spring training. Before, mm-hmm. because that way, you know, they can um, they can almost use that as a an, an extended, you know, that is extended spring training, but really a, an extra spring training for those guys. So that if you put it's in, on the guy, name, it's yes, in the name, Neil, it's <laughs> in the name, hear you. but if, if you put them on a triple A roster and have a guy who is limited in terms of how you can use them, um, it really is because the starting pitchers may be on lower pitch counts at that point. You know, it, it really limits how you can use those pitchers. So you, you I, I wouldn't be shocked if they started the year and extended, then went to Durham, and then hopefully at some point, you know, whether it's May or June, whatever it is, would be ready to help the big club when, when called upon.
0: Mm. So, Neil, there's a there's been a lot of press attention on Blake Snell this year. A little bit curious if you've noticed anything different about him and how he's grown as a player since interviewing him last year.
2: You know, I sat down with him probably three times last year, uh, either in person or over the phone. And, and you know, I, I think that the thing that he came into camp in pretty good shape, I mean, I think he continues to evolve and mature physically as much as the mental side of things. You know, I think last year is where he really took a, a major step forward. The, the story about his dad and his brother kind of having, a, I don't know if you would call it a a come-to-Jesus type moment, but you know, somewhere of the effect of, hey, you won 2014 Minor League Player of the Year in the system or Pitcher of the Year, but you still have a long way to go and you can do a lot better and you can work a lot harder. And he bought into it and was a different guy last year. Now, a lot's been made of the the Chris Archer conversation with him and Jake Faria about when they arrived in the clubhouse on day one, but I think it was message sent, message received, and, it, and they both were in the clubhouse at 7 a.m. the next day, um, and I think for all guys having been at the minor and major league level, I think they do have a, a little bit to learn about how different the, the uh, work ethic is needed to st- not only get there, but to stay there. And I think to get it across as early as possible was was important and, and I think beneficial for both those guys.
1: If I'm being honest, I was slightly disappointed by the characterization of that. I really appreciated that even as as young as Chris Archer is, he's already able to step up into a leadership role in the rotation and really help these guys along. I would see it more as an education moment.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I was there for it, so I saw it. And and, and there were no video cameras in there at the time, so it wasn't like it was, you know, maybe audio was recorded, but no video was recorded of it. And, you know, when I saw it kind of happening, I expected that it was going to get a lot of attention but I also understood it for what it was. And, you know, I think a couple of us talked to Steve Geltz, whose locker is a few down, and he said, look, I had to get kind of the same talking to. Maybe it didn't happen in front of, you know, the media at present, but, you know, I had to learn, you know, how to handle myself and, and the things I were expected of me that maybe I didn't know or understand coming into a big league camp. So I, I think all rookies in a major league camp have have to kind of learn okay this is the way we do things now this is how we take it up a notch um and and i really believe that's what it was about and and i do think it was understood and received and you know what i would hope that nobody judges um either chris Archer, who sent the message by what he did i, I took it as a positive and i took it the mm-hmm. same way for for snell and faria because i think uh, again i think it's going to help accelerate their growth
1: when you were interviewing Jamie Schultz earlier this week, he's another guy who's going to be in that Durham rotation next year. And he had a perspective of really wanting to acclimate to the major league system. Did he seem like a player who was really open to being there to learn and being a sponge for all these players around him?
2: I I think so. You know, I think the best thing to do is to, and, and, you know, we're only a few days in, so you get a, a better understanding of these guys when you get to watch them for two or three weeks. But beyond that, you know, he's having conversations with people who have been around them, you know, pitching coordinators and coaches. And all of them to a man really feel that this is a driven kid who is a listener, who is open to critiques and suggestions and ideas um, and wants to learn and grow and is very, very committed to the physical and the mental aspect. Um, and I think there's a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because he is only five ten. And, you know, that's not usually how starting pitchers are built in Major League Baseball today. And I think he wants to prove that, you know, that theory wrong, that he can do it and he can do it for a long time. And, and, you know, I kind of am anxious to see how he evolves this year because, you know, he, he obviously has plus stuff. I mean, he has a plus plus fastball, a plus curveball. You know, he's got two Major League Plus pitches already. And, you know, who knows, maybe in August or September, we're talking about him helping a... A raised bullpen, um, you know, because I think there's only one or two days off in the month of September as well. So it'll be all hands on deck for that last month if the Rays are in contention.
1: If he's able to really settle in with that changeup, do you think the Rays will keep him as a starter?
2: I would think so. I mean, I think you're definitely more valuable as a starter than a reliever, you know, for any organization, because if you can pitch 200 good innings, it's a whole lot better than 60 good innings. Um, or 80 good innings, or whatever, you know, however you deploy your relievers. At the same time, you know, if there came a point where you felt you had enough starting depth, whether it's Jamie, whether it, regardless of who it is, and you have guys that can pitch multiple innings, um, and instead of being, you know, I think we may see, I wouldn't call it, I think, a combination of old school and new school. I mean, what if instead of having a 60- or 70-inning reliever, you had a 100-inning reliever? Who maybe you know isn't a starter, but he isn't, but he also can pitch you know a couple innings, you know. And I look at guys like um, Mark Sappington, who's in camp, or Parker Markell, who you know pitched probably you know 120, 130 innings. You know, what if they were mm-hmm. in that hundred range um, and they could do that effectively with 95 you know plus type fastballs? Does that make them greater assets for your major league organization? I would probably venture to say yes. I would say Schultz, you know. We'll see how it evolves, but it probably depends also on some of the other guys and how they develop, too.
0: Flipping to the other side of the diamond, we're a little bit stacked in the catching department, and I'm curious if you could talk about what you're seeing new from the catchers ever have reported.
2: Well, you know, I think the, the, the disappointing part was, you know, Justin O'Connor put in a lot of work. I mean, he spent a considerable amount of time working with one of the hitting coordinators, Chad Matola, in Instructional League on revamping his swing a bit. Uh, And then he has the the back injury, the the slightly herniated disc that's going to keep him out of major league camp Mm because this really was a growth chance for him. You know, I think the Rays are familiar with Rene Rivera, who who also has made some offensive changes. Um, I'm anxious to watch him hit against live pitching because he's gotten rid of his leg kick. It's now just a toe tap. He's kind of trying to become shorter and quicker to the ball. Talk about Tony Gwynn in the 5.5 hole, or he's joked, Renee has, about using the 4.4 hole and not being a dead pull hitter and using the entire field. And, you know, seeing how he does it against live pitching is, is going to be a greater test. But, you know, obviously the Rays have belief in him defensively. I think what Kirk Casale did last year established him as a guy who's going to make um, the big league club to start this year. You know, the thing that's interesting is both Casale and uh, Hank Conger, the newcomer, Both have options, and I think Hmm. that's probably something that not most people realize. So, you know, with O'Connor out and not knowing how quickly he'll come back, you know, if the Rays were, let's say, at the end of camp to go with Conger over Rivera and DFA, Renee, you know, look, he's getting, what, $1.7, $1.8 million for the year. Maybe no one takes a chance on him, Uh, but if there's someone with a catching injury, maybe they do, and the Rays' depth is down to really just, you know, Luke Maley in terms of major league options. Um, you know, would that lead them if, if they felt that were the case to, to, for the moment option, you know, someone who has an option left and, and go with, you know, and stay with Renee. Um, I think that's a really interesting question for the next six weeks. I have no idea what the answer is going to be, Mm -hmm. but I think those are things that the Rays are going to have to balance going forward because, you know, they're also going to have to look at, okay, are there some catchers on the market that may be available? If, if you, they, you know, if they decided to go with Conger and Casale so they have enough depth in AAA.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Too much of our uh, our writing staff is still obsessed with the Jonathan Lucroy trade.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I don't getting Jonathan right. Croix would take I, I think it would be difficult. I would love to see the raise at a guy like Jonathan Lucroy. I mean, you know, but that's also pending health. Um, you know, he had some major issues last year and, um, you know, how he bounces back. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of guys keeping an eye on him in Arizona, probably from several organizations, um, to see how he looks. I mean, it's hard to judge how a guy's going to hit. Um, to me, the things you can judge is how a guy is faring health-wise and, and how they defend. Speaking of priorities around health and defense, two guys that I have my
1: eyes on in camp right now are Steven Souza and James Loney. Are you able to speak of either of their
2: current status health-wise I mean, James is, is uh, I thought, slimmed down. Um, you know, I, I mm. thought he look, came in in great shape. You know, Mark Topkin was, I think, the first one to report that, that James came in great shape and, or that he was in great shape in the offseason, and he wasn't wrong. I mean, you know, James probably lost between 5 and 10 pounds, but he's much more, he's much, it's, it's, it's not only that, but he's leaner and more, you know, more muscular. I mean, Steven Souza Jr. has um, pulled muscle on the left side in the ribcage area. It's better than an oblique um and hopefully it's nothing that keeps him out too long i think he hopes to be back on the field friday when the full squad workouts begin but i mean you know those things can kind of linger and it's probably better off to make sure he's hundred percent before you get him back on the field taking swings
1: i mentioned those two players together because i really feel like consistent playing time will help bring the best out of each of their bats i'm not really sure either player was used to being on the sidelines and having to come in and out through the year through different injuries
2: Yeah, I mean, for James, it was totally unique. Um, You know, last year was the first time he was ever on the DL at the major league level. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in Steven's case, I thought he had really good moments. And then it seemed like whenever things were starting to turn, then he did get hurt. Um, And they were kind of freak injuries. So, I mean, I'm hoping that that kind of stuff is is behind him. I think the good thing in terms of the outfield situation is the Rays do have a lot of depth. You know, having a guy like Mikey Motuk and Brandon Geyer, you know, the Rays do have their fair share of right-handed hitting outfielders. And look, the, with the Orioles uh, getting Dexter Fowler, I mean, I would think that a guy like Joey Rickard, um, I still think he's going to be hard-pressed to find a spot as a, as a Rule 5 guy. Mm-hmm. On, uh, on Baltimore's roster, which means the Rays could get him back. And then that would even add to their right-hand hitting depth in their organization for outfielders. So, and Johnny Fields in camp, too. A guy who, you know not last year, but the year before, was their minor league player of the year. So I think there is some depth behind Steven. Obviously, he has tremendous potential. I think the good thing is with the additions offensively, the pressure is going to be off Steven a bit to
0: perform. So, Neil, everyone's excited about the boost in offense in terms of the additions off season. But I'm curious, who do you think the most underrated hitting prospect that the Rays have would be?
2: You know, that's a great question. I guess that Jake Bowers has now gotten the attention he deserves. But I still think in terms of the national scene, um, there probably aren't enough people talking about his maturity as a hitter. I think in terms of an overall prospect, I still have a strong belief in Willie Adamas. Remember that he's still also 20 years old. And, mm-hmm. you know, that he's going to be playing at a double-A level, uh, his age is going to be well below that of the average in, in the Southern League. And Florida State League is, a, is very much, you know, a pitcher's league in terms of the way the ball carries. He's a strong kid with good right center field power. And more than that, I think he has tremendous, tremendous character and, and is very humble. And I think it's going to carry him a long way to a man people in the race organization you know really believe he has the character that if he if he hits well enough um he's going to be you know a key piece of a major league of the Rays major league plans for the future certainly after the price trade i even remember um trying to read
1: around and keep my ear to the ground and it was just sounded like uh the clubhouse loved him right when he showed
2: up mhm he's a great kid i mean you know for someone to pick up you know I, I, a A foreign language and to be able to communicate. and he does his interviews. You know I did an interview with him last year. He wanted to make sure it was all done in English. To be mm-hmm. able to do that after spending a year and a half in this country, to me is amazing. And he always has a smile on his face. In fact, you know, he's one of. Uh, through um, Thursday, the Rays have, I guess, 140 minor league players that are going to be due in on March the fourth or fifth or whatever their reporting date is. They already had 64 players in camp as of Tuesday. Uh, that's that's very very. That's two weeks early and half the guys <laughs> in camp. Mm-hmm. And and Willie Adamas is right in the middle of it. Um, and he's. Been there since I think since January, working in poor Charlotte. You know, he he was uh, dinged up at the end of the year, and he wanted to get off to a good start. And um, I think he wants to prove that he's still a top prospect overall in the game.
0: So Neil, the Rays are stacked depth wise up the middle. We've got Robertson, Motter, Brett Franklin, and Beckham. All of these guys have a possibility of of getting a starting middle infield job in Durham. How do you think that's going to play out there?
2: Well, I, mean, I think one of the things to look at is that Ryan Brett is also going to play some outfield. I mean, he was starting to play some outfield last year. And I think that, you know, versatility is the key. I mean, you know, whether it's Nick Franklin or Daniel Robertson, um, I think the Rays are preaching versatility to all these guys. Um, you know, even when I mentioned Jake Bowers, I mean, yeah, he's not a middle infield player, but, you know, he, he's he played the outfield Um in the Arizona Fall League. Daniel Robertson played second base in the Arizona Fall League. I think if your bat's going to play and and you're, um, you're good at run prevention, you're going to find an opportunity, especially in this organization. I mean, I think Ben Zobris set the standard, and I think there are a lot of guys, and I think Taylor Motter even talked about this um, in chats I've had with him, that, you know, he learned from watching Ben, and and I think the, the the understanding in, these, in the organization is, hey, if you can play multiple positions, you have a better chance to move up. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see a lot of moving around, whether it's double A AA or triple A, because at double A, Jake Hager is going to be back. I think he's going to play, probably have to play a utility role because of guys like Daniel Robertson and Willie Adams Riley Unro is going to be knocking on the door, and Ju Velasquez is going to be knocking on the door. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, Keen Wong. Mm-hmm. I think people forget about him too. I think, you know, people forget he's only, what, 20 years of age or 19 years of age. Um, and he's probably ready to play at the AA level. You know, he's a hitter. Um, you know, does he have enough power? I mean, I would kind of like to see, you know, it's hard to project what a guy's going to become at 22, 23, 24 years of age in terms of the power aspect of their game. I mean, but the bottom line is the guy knows how to hit and he has a good understanding of his strike zone. And for guys that young, that's hard to find. You mentioned Ryan Brett a couple
1: minutes ago, and he was worthy of being a top-ten prospect last year, and then he dislocated his shoulder, I think, for the fourth time, if Mm -hmm. I remember his injury history, and he needed surgery this time around. Do we have any feel for how that surgery might have gone or how he's doing?
2: I actually chatted with him today, and he said he feels it feels as good as it has, period. Um, You know, I think they're going to be careful with him, and I don't think you're going to see him – Um, you know, I think one of the things they want to do is test it while diving, you know, for balls Mm -hmm. at some point in spring training and see how that responds, but he feels great. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's, again, it's batting practice, but on the backfields, watching him hit seems really free and easy. And I see that whip in his swing again. So he's got plus speed and, and he can, and he's, and he can hit. So, um, if the shoulder is good and it's able to hold up, I mean, you know, there's a reason he was a top 10 prospect and, you know, he, he could be a good bounce back candidate before we let you go. Do you have a prospect sleeper
1: on either side of the ball that you can give us? It could be someone already mentioned, but who are you going to be really looking for this year?
2: Well, you know, I think that, um, one guy, I mean, I don't know if he's a sleeper, but, but I think that, you know, among the guys who were drafted last year, I'm really curious about how Brandon uh, Couch performs and where he's placed and also Ben Moss. Um they're both bright mature kids and you know obviously pitching is everything to the Rays. So I'm curious how those two guys evolve from a uh, from a pitching standpoint. And then I'm also interested at the lower levels because I think you know, we've talked about a lot of upper level guys. I'm curious about Tommy Malone because I heard a lot of good things about his growth last year. He was a guy who was more of a football player than baseball player when he was drafted. And people rave about his outfield skills. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if it is now with a, his first full year under his belt, you know, how he takes his game up and hopefully is able to raise it another notch and, and, and really become a, a higher level prospect for the
0: race. So, Neil, uh, maybe one last question I'm really curious about. If you could talk about one of your favorite memories in baseball being associated with the race.
2: Well, I mean, I I would think, I mean, you have to go 8-11. and Um, You know, know, in terms of 11, I mean, it was, for me, even though I was in Durham at the time, it was very personal. Because Dan Johnson hit the game-tying home run in the ninth inning. And... Corey Wade was a pitcher for Durham during that year. And he was the one who gave up the game tying Homer and it left because he didn't think he was getting a major league opportunity with the Rays. He went to the Yankees and lo and behold, Mm -hmm. he gave up the Homer to Dan who, you know, not only were uh, he and I, you know, um, very friendly, but you know, our wives and kids were. So, you know, I remember watching it from my couch in Durham, North Carolina and um, his wife, Holly, used to never watch his at-bats because she always said that something, hmm. you know, it's, it's nothing good happened when she was watching. And she would sometimes watch the games. Uh, they, they were on local TV, on, on digital cable. Um, and she sometimes would bring the kids over for a home game and watch them from our house and then leave uh, to put them to bed <laughs> when he was about to have an at-bat. And then my wife would let Holly know when when she missed a home run or something happened. Um, So immediately when he hit that home run, um, she was back in Minnesota with her family. And um, my wife was texting her and said, I bet you, I hope you saw that one. And she did. She was watching. (laughs) Um, And it was just kind of a neat just neat moment because I, I really feel for those guys who, who kind of really grind and get the few chances and then make good. I mean, people forget he hit the home run. They gave the race the first win of the year in, in when they got off to that rough start. And then the most important win of the year at the end, which got mm-hmm. them into the wild card. It, it doesn't happen without him tying the game Longo Can't win it, you know, later on. So I mean, from a distance, those are really, really cool moments. And then being part of 2013, since I've joined the Rays was, was awesome. You know, seeing Price win that game in Texas, um, mm-hmm. you know, having to go through basically three winner take all games, um, you know, winning the last game in Toronto, winning in Texas, and then winning Cleveland and the one game wild card. Um, right. really also very, very cool stuff. That's the Alex Cobb game, right? Yeah. The Alex Cobb game, the Delman Young game. Yeah. I mean, Delman Young hitting, uh, uh, home run off Danny Santana. Um, and, and how loud that place was is something that's gonna I'm always going to remember. I mean, it really was raucous in Cleveland that night. And, I mean, you could hear a pin drop after Delman hit that home run. I mean, and, and that, you know, it, it was kind of a, well, that just changed everything. And it was just kind of cool seeing – you know, another small market club with so much energy that you know it had some great moments. You know, in the '90s as a franchise, and and I thought I I, I think they're a very dangerous club to be honest this year too, um, in the American League Central. One of only four teams that the Pocota system projects to over
1: 90 wins this year.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if I nec- I mean, Kansas City has some gripes with Pocota over the last couple of years, so um let's hope they're right on some teams and and uh, i guess kansas city's hoping they're wrong on others again
0: well Neil, we certainly really appreciate your insights your expertise and of course everything that you do in and around the rays helping to get information back to us the fans thanks so much for for spending some time with us and and giving us a completely different perspective that that could only come from someone of your stature and experience
2: well, I really appreciate it. I mean, you guys, you know, I, I read D Race Bay all the time, um, and you guys give me uh, a fair amount of unique insights too. So I think, you know, uh, the feeling's mutual, and I appreciate you guys having me.
0: Wow, Danny, can you believe that we actually interviewed Neil Solons in the second episode of this podcast? I still have chills. It was such a good interview. Thanks so much, Neil. We really appreciate the insights. That's going to do it. We'll see you guys next time on The Hit Show.